Welcome to episode 65 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's first and only open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and for the first time in well over a year, the guys and I are recording at a special time, which is more friendly for our friends in Europe and Africa. We look forward to talking to old friends and hopefully some new listeners. Tell us what kinds of gear you've picked up recently, what have you been shooting, and what kinds of questions do you have for us? It is lunchtime here for Paul, Anthony, and myself, but Theo is just waking up at the crack of dawn Tuesday morning, so hopefully he can get a large pitcher of coffee and not yawn too loudly. How's it going over there, Theo? Where am I? It's dark. What's going on? It's, it's what's, what's what's this morning crap? <laughs> no, I'm doing well, thanks. It's, it's a bit of an early start, but I'm doing really well. As always, we have a waiting room full of eager listeners, so let's let them in. I don't know about you, Paul, but I feel shortchanged. Yeah, I didn't yeah. get my intro. I didn't have time to think of one. Leave this in so everybody knows we're, we were here. <laughs> wow, we need to do this more often. All right, we got a large room here of some familiar faces and some new people. John Michael Mendeza, how you doing, man? Hey there, nice to see you guys. Yeah, you were on our last European show. You're you're in Germany, right? I am in Germany, yep. Awesome. Where specifically? I'm in a town called Erfurt, which is right in the middle of the country. And it's uh, very close to Jena. So if you think about Carl Zeiss, Jena, it's like 20 minutes from me. I wanted to get in for the uh, the Eastern European one, but it was just way too early in the morning for me. Yeah. All right. I see. I'm just going to go through some of these people here real quick. Adrian Cullen. Adrian, welcome. Hi there. Thank you very much. I'm um, from Edinburgh, Scotland. A long time listener, but I've never called him before. Yeah, I've seen you. You've participated in the group, though. Your name looks familiar. Yeah, 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 yeah. On the Facebook group. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, welcome. Didn't start as a collector, but it seems to be happening. <laughs> I think that's uh, happened to a lot of us, frankly. Tadeus Placci? Did I say that close to right? Uh, Blackie. Blackie? Blackie. Well, welcome. Oh, where are you calling from? Yeah, I'm from Czech Republic. Uh, quite close to Prague, which is our capital. Awesome. Yeah. I also wanted to join on like Russian or Eastern European cameras, but the time slot wasn't great for me. That's why we try to do this. And we've been wanting to do one for a while. And it just, you know, our schedules are sometimes hard to work through too. So uh, I'm glad to see you here. Maybe you could help represent some flexorats for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was ready for that. To be, to be honest, I quite hate those cameras. <laughs> like, no national pride. Yeah, but they are, I, I prepared like one or two Czech cameras that are quite interesting yet quite obscure. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear more about them. Stuart Pratt. Welcome, Stuart. Well, we'll just say Stuart says hi to all of us. Welcome to the show, John Kelly. First time caller. Delighted to be here. I'm just outside Washington, D.C., which is our capital city. So you you you're New England, right? Not Old England. Correct. Although it's really the Mid Atlantic. Federico Quaglino. Um, now that's a name I'm sure has been on the show before. Welcome back. Yeah, I've been here uh, last last year. Last year. Where are you from? Calling from Italy. Italy. Awesome. Italy. Turn. I see. I see Tim Peters from Michigan again. Welcome back, Tim. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, the Upper Peninsula might as well be Europe. You know, it's a whole different world up there. Yeah, it's. Hey, it's the one place in the country with the Finnish majority, so. Let's try Alan Duncan. I always love talking to Alan because uh, he is, his motto is he shoots the crappy camera so we don't have to. So I, I don't want to assume every camera you shoot is crappy, but uh, let's, I, I always find it fascinating when you come on the show and, and tell us about some bizarro camera that ends up making me interested in it. That, that's happened more than once. But one or two today. Uh. <laughs> 
So we don't have, we're not, we're not covering any specific brands or types of cameras. Uh, we wanted to do a quick show with all you guys that we haven't spoken to in a long time. I've set aside a collection of what I think are some interesting European cameras, not from the typical, you know, German brands and such that you, you would, you would often hear about, but I'd love to just kind of get started with some of you guys, you know, tell us what are some things you've been shooting lately? Uh, talk to us about some recent pickups or stuff that you you found fascinating. And of course, if there's any questions for us, you know that would be great too. Tedious, you said you had some interesting Czech cameras, so I, why don't we just start with you? What uh, what do you have for us? One of the quite interesting and very obscure Czech cameras is called Opema. It's basically like a small small rangefinder camera. It shoots. It doesn't shoot like full full frame it shoots like 24 by 32 i believe some maybe some japanese cameras shot the similar similar format it was because of a slide film i think yeah 24 by 32 was appealing because it's a four by three ratio instead of three by two and it's better for i think it's good for enlarging like the eight by tens you get more pictures per film on that and and there were a few european cameras that did that too this this camera it has uh basically it was, there was opema one and opema two opema two was a small rangefinder camera a little bit smaller than leica 3 or any rangefinder screwmant leica and they made like a whole system it had it had like 30 millimeter lens 45 90 135 180 and there was and there was Opema One, Opema Two, and uh, version two has a rangefinder. It has a it has a rangefinder like normal camera. You have just one window. You don't have separate rangefinder and viewfinder window. And uh, the story is that the camera was constructed during World War Two. Yet it got on the market after the war. And the version Opema 1 was without rangefinder, so just scale focus. And, and it was put to the market later as a cheaper version of the version 2. I had one Opema 2. It was advertised as that it's working, everything is fine. It came to me by mail and the shutter was stuck. That wasn't so problematic. Shutter, I could give it to my technician. He would get it unstuck and repair it. Is it a leaf shutter or a focal plane? Focal plane. Okay. Yeah. It, it has interchangeable lenses. It's really like a like a three or like a two. I gotcha. But the the pressure plate, it was like the surface of the moon. <laughs> like cratered, scratched. And I was like, yeah, I don't have like time and money to solve that. The lens was hazy. I was looking for pictures from Opema on Flickr of all of places. And I found like few pictures shot probably on Sony A7 with the 45 millimeter lens from this camera. Okay. It wasn't good. <laughs> is, is that the same company that makes the enlargers? Melpta, yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, basically during, the, during the communist time, there was this basically Melpta was the biggest optical company in Czech Republic and they made basically everything even even Flexared was made in their factory and yeah that that is I think I think Opema is one of the one of the Czech cameras that really intrigued me then of course everyone knows Flexared then there were few they did uh subminis Miapta did some subminis yeah uh, mic Mikroma yeah Mikroma 
they made it. They actually had Macroma had stereo miniature camera sub minis that uh, they had them in different colors. You can you can get Microma or stereo Microma or any accessories for them in Czech Republic for like cheap, like really cheap. Well, Opimas enlargers were pretty common in the United States. Yeah, uh, because they they had a, an enlarger that folded into a suitcase. Yeah, I have like six or eight of them. Yeah, and they were they were quite popular in the U.S. They were they were good enlargers actually. They were quite well made and they were didn't take up a lot of space. Yeah, so you could easily uh, fold it up and put it away when you weren't using it. And they have a they have very good system for focusing the enlarger. If you pull out the tray just a little bit, then you can see like projected like two lines, and you move the enlarger, and basically you go inside the lines. And that makes the enlarger in focus. You don't have to use the loop for the grain. You can if you want, but you can focus enlarger like that. Paul, who would have distributed Mayopta in the United States? Oh man, probably one of the camera sh uh, stores like uh, Spiratone or or someone like that that had not only a store but also a, a wholesale division. So I think it was actually Spiratone, Fred Spira. Well, that. That would make sense because Spiratone did a lot of Soviet stuff. They brought over the MTO mirror lens. So they probably had a lot of maybe contacts in the in the Eastern European countries like, you know, Czechoslovakia, uh, probably Hungary, I guess, too, maybe. Yeah, I think that's true. The uh, I found this one in Kurt's collection. It's a, a Focaflex, which is a 120 TLR with a, a special Focar 2 lens on it. This dates back into the dates to the 50s and 60s. It's very, very primitive. Self-cocking shutter. It does have uh, four speeds and bulb, which is pretty cool. And it, I think it's it's probably very similar to a, a white lighter brillant with the the way the the viewing screen is, and uh, it's not really a twin lens reflex, but it's it's. Is it more a pseudo TLR, but like some of the Alina Prefects and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's actually not a. It's it's actually a pretty cool little camera, and and not very common in the U.S. The the thing was what I would like to mention that how how the production of enlargers and cameras and this worked in like Eastern European countries. We had this thing called RVHP. It was so sort of like economic pact, and it was basically that basically the Soviet Union said, okay, Czech Republic can produce one model of one twenty camera. That was Flexaret. 35 millimeter cameras will be produced by East Germany. That's why we have Exas, Practicas, and this. And okay, and also Meopta can produce enlargers, but East German can produce, for example, just one model of enlarger. And they basically centrally distributed what each country can produce. That's why, for example, we don't have any 35 millimeter cameras made in Czechoslovakia after 1960 maybe yeah because they said all 35 millimeter cameras in eastern bloc will be produced in soviet union and east germany uh, you can have something here and there but this is how the system how the system worked for everything basically that's interesting i never knew that i have a very useful uh, uh myopter enlarging lens an 80 millimeter f 2.8 which is quite unusually fast and it's uh, absolutely beautiful lens to use and it's just very curious because, as far as I'm aware, very few other manufacturers made anything quite as fast as that. It's handy for doing um, lift printing. Uh, you need very extended uh, exposure time sometimes. 
Yeah, they, they, they even, uh, we have a photographic collective and we just now furnished a dark room that we use. And our friend, he found, a, I think, 80 millimeter lens for enlarging 120. And it's also 2.8. And it's one of the lenses made in 90s. And they it's apochromatic, all the bells and whistles. And they make like 15 of them. And yet... Yet he bought it for like fifty dollars. They are, yeah, they are pretty good. And yeah, as I mentioned, that I hate Flexaret. Uh, uh, Flexaret is uh, it's hard to find one that is uh, in good shape. Uh, they most problematic with them is that uh, you get hazy lenses from the oil from the shutter, and the lens get hazy, and then the pictures are just so soft, not not very good. But if if you find one which has been recently serviced. That's really lucky that we still have few guys, like very old guys who were servicing these cameras and they still have spare parts and you can get them refurbished for, I don't know, full refurbishment of Flexaret costed me like $50. Geja Dune, uh, who's, he sells under Kupag on eBay. He does a lot of servicing of Flexarets and that's what I, I've told people before. If you're looking to get one, buying straight from him he's in slovakia um on the other other side well the other half i guess you say but he still does a lot of them and he says he can get them pretty easily and they, they're reasonably priced especially even being in the united states getting them from him with the cla and shipping is under 200 bucks and you i can't even get if i had a roll of flex I couldn't get a Roloflex and get it CLA'd for that price. So yeah, the lenses, the the lenses on Flexaret. I have, uh, I had version four. My friend has version seven, and the version seven, when it was serviced, the lenses were cleaned. It took very similar pictures to my Yashica Mat with Yashinon. It was, I couldn't tell the difference. So the if it's if it's clean and it's working. It's on par, I would say, with Yashica D or something like this. But the focusing screens, they are just terrible. They're very dark, yeah. Very dark. They don't have the Fresnel lens. Only the Model 7 had the Fresnel lens. But it was made from plastic. And due to aging, the plastic got red. So sometimes if you get Model 7, you open it and the viewfinder is red. Yeah, mine's... It's funny you say that because it's exactly... You've perfectly described mine. Um my of a seven and the lens is great. The shutter still works fine, but the, the focusing screen is turned like a brownish orange. So, you know, kind of like a red. There's the plastic uh, uh, Fresnel lens under the focusing screen. But other, other, other than that, it's a, yeah, it's a TLR. It's not Rolleiflex. Well, and a, a, a nice feature of the Flexor at seven is it's one of the few six by six TLRs that can also do four and a half by six. So you could shoot, you know, what what the Japanese companies would call semi, the the semi format, and get sixteen exposures per roll, if if you so wish. There there was few prototypes of Flexaret eight, and some people made like homemade Flexaret eight, and the eight was supposed to be able to mount the Penta Prism from the Pentacon six. Okay, that's cool. So so you would have. So you would have a TLR, but with like a normal viewfinder. But I saw I saw a few guys converting the model six and seven to mount this this pentaprism viewfinder from Pentacon Six. It, it it was quite popular with some photographers who shot sport or stuff like this. They did this conversion. That must have been even dimmer than if if you've got a dim focusing screen to begin with, and then you're doing it through the pentaprism. That must have been really dark. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the pentaprism of Pentacon 6, it's like dark, yeah. Now, do you know, like maybe in the later half of the, the 20th century, was there any Japanese cameras in Czech Republic at all? Could you get a Nikon? You could get, you, oh, funny thing that you are asking. Uh, yeah, you could get, you, you could basically get anything. We had this uh, shop called Tuzex. You you had to buy special coupons for it, which were quite expensive, or you had to pay with foreign currency there. It was state-owned shop, and you could buy some Western goods there, including cameras. And the special camera shops, they also, yeah, in 60s, you could buy Heimatik, it would be expensive, but you could buy it. And I have this Nikon FM2 with uh, 30, 35F2 lens. And this lens was bought by Czech state press agency because we had this state organized press agency. We still have it now. And in 60s, the photographers of the state press agency, they used Nikon F, Nikon F and Nikon F2. And... They bought a bunch of F, F2 bodies with these lenses, 35 F2. And in 80s, they bought Nikon FM2s. And they, they took the lens and they converted it for the auto-indexing. They just basically, uh, it wouldn't be visible, but they just basically cut it. They notch it, yeah. Both this lens and this camera came from the Czech press agency. It was liberated in the 90s by someone. And it ended up with me. And that's cool. And I, it's from outside, it's beaten as hell, scratched and everything, but still run, runs fine. And I must say, I love this lens. The pre, the pre AI 35 F2, probably best lens I have. I have. I, I love it how, how it looks. And yeah, and I, I'm, I mostly shoot with Leica. I don't like SLRs that much, but FM2 with this lens, it's like the best. Uh, I will try to show it if you can see like the camera, how it's brass. It's brass. Yeah. I mean, typically cameras like that, that show the greatest wear usually work fine because it means that they were not only kept in regular operation, but anybody who would have shot the camera that much would have had it serviced as opposed to the mint condition showing nowhere still has the original plastic on the bottom plate. That's great if you're a collector and want a pretty camera, but if you're going to try and use it, there's a much higher chance that that the mint cameras aren't going to work properly. Whereas the, 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 the beaters like yours are going to be great. The, the worst thing is uh, when you, when you, when you go, when you call someone, he has an advertisement that he's selling camera and he says to you, Oh, the camera was kept in the orig original leather case. And it's usually like, it's stinky, it's moldy. It's the the stuff they used to tend the leather. It will eat the, it will corrode basically the surface of the camera if it's not chrome. And yeah, like cameras like these, no, stay, stay away from this. Like well-used well cameras are usually better. Yeah, Tedious, thanks for uh, for sharing with us some Czech stuff. I I didn't know any of that about the restrictions on the different models, and but it kind of makes sense because you know Miopta was great with the enlargers, and you know they had the the the, the one twenty TLRs, but um, that's interesting that they the Soviet government just sort of restricted stuff like that too. So yeah, yeah, wanted to give some other people a chance to talk while I was doing the intros earlier. Uh, I, I did miss JS. Uh, JS, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, it's actually Jeremy. The name's just kind of funky on there. It just is my initials. But yeah, Jeremy Scott. 
I'm in Oklahoma. Okay. And been listening for a while, but first time hopping on. Awesome. I like your showcase back there. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of the uh, the Barrister bookcases here. I'll move in a little bit for you. Barrister bookcases with uh, I've got some lights underneath that kind of illuminate it without messing it up. Is there anything specific you've been shooting lately, or any questions for us? Uh, mostly I've been adapting some of my older lenses to a mirrorless system. I've just got into that recently, so I'm just really exploring the lenses that, you know, I just haven't been shooting as much film as I would like to. And just the the cost and everything to do everything, it it just makes it so much more fun to jump over to the mirrorless and throw some of these lenses on and just go go crazy with them. Like right now, I've got the uh, Canon 25 uh, LTM and uh, the 25.35 on my uh, Nikon ZF. And it's a stinking sharp lens. It's awesome. Have you had that lens long? Uh, a couple of years, I think. I can't remember how long I've had it. The reason I ask you is I just had three of those. And, uh, and I sold all three of them on eBay. And, and then then I decided I wish I had one. <laughs> <laughs> so so now I'm looking for one. Well, my experience with the Canon rangefinder lenses is the Canon branded ones are usually okay. But I've had really poor luck with the Serenars, especially the wide angle ones. They Every single one I've ever come across has had pretty bad haze. So I don't know if it's the, the whole Balsam or whatever kind of glue or whatever they use to cement the lenses together but i tend to have poor luck with the serenars yeah similar similar experience here wayne wayne just join us wayne welcome hi you want to introduce yourself um i'm wayne i'm from belgium i uh mainly collect minoltas but uh if it's cheap and interesting i'll pick it up as well were you the guy who showed us the minolta disco record it's right there yep. <laughs> yeah we were hoping you'd show up <laughs> for those of you who haven't listened there it is who, yeah there it is it looks like a disc film the kodak disc film they they designed the actual vinyl record to look like that and uh i after the show he was on i went on youtube and was able to find a couple of the sample songs um that are on that record and, and we'll just say i think the record's pretty cool terrible music but it's just amazing that they just that they made it <laughs> yeah yeah well, what are you shooting then? What do you, anything cool from Minolta? Not really cool. I uh, I picked up a, a cheap, non-working SRT. It was an early model, so I, I just thought it's nice to have in the collection, but it appeared to be completely fine. Metering works, everything's just perfect. So I've been really enjoying that. Uh, and uh, not really Minolta related. I've been shooting my Practica 4, 4F. So basic, but neat little M42 camera, so. Very neat. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the SR series. I had borrowed an SR2 not too long ago. Those are pretty hard to find. That was Minolta's first SLR. They only produced it for about a year before upgrading it to the SR3. They added the ability to, to do a um, exposure meter, clip-on meter to that, but otherwise the cameras are still pretty the same. But one thing I found with the early Minolta SLRs, which is similar to the early Azahi Flex, the Pentax SLRs, is the early 50s SLRs compared to the later 60s models while the 60s models are certainly built well they're nice quality cameras but when you hold an original minolta sr2 or 3 compared to the later models the earlier ones just feel more robust more i, I hate to say it this way but more german and and like that hand built and i think that there's a little bit of truth to that and that the early Azahi flexes and the early Minoltas, there was a larger amount of the lenses, or I'm sorry, the bodies that were hand built. They just feel like they're they're just more rugged. Hold an, an Azahi flex 
with the waist level finder compared to a Spotmatic. And the Azahi Flexes just feel like much more substantial cameras. And and I had that same opinion of the SR2 and SR3 as well. John Michael, over by yeah. Dana, do you have uh, some some Veras that are are Veras easy to find in your area of the country? Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff like that. You know, X's are all over the place. Uh, Practica is everywhere. My my former boss was a big fan of the Pentagon Six, so he had several of them and a whole whole bunch of lenses and everything. Um, and I think I think he had almost almost every Practica in the in the range. You know, he, he had a whole collection of them. But it's not something that I've actually gotten into much. I've I've had a couple kind of come and go, but it, I don't know. They just kind of seemed fairly basic and this is probably the most interesting one that's that's come across my my path i don't know if it's going to focus if you guys can see that yeah it's a ta- taxon it's a taxona that's square format isn't it it's square format yeah it's a uh, 24 by 24 and i i love it because this it's really actually easy to use because this lever cocks and and advances the film and then this lever fires the shutter so it's really easy to just kind of go Left, right, left, right. For the people listening, you just got basically two index finger triggers, so you can alternate back and forth. My most recent acquisition is the Tenax, which is the forebear of the Texona. What's the difference? Uh, this one's made in thirty-eight uh, with an uncoated lens, and uh, believe there are some internal differences, but otherwise it's square format. The flip-up viewfinder looks different, maybe. Yeah, fl- yeah, flip, flip-up, flip-up viewfinder, and uh, the advance is also on the left-hand side. Uh, nice, nice little thing. Takes really good images. Little Nova lens. I've got a filter on the front there, which is obscure. But uh, yeah. One interesting uh, piece of trivia that I found when I was I did a review of the Zeiss uh, 10x2, and then you, you know, which is also square format, but it's got a rangefinder and interchangeable lenses. But they actually made the 10x2 before the 10x1. The 10x1 came later for for whatever reason. Yeah, they they. They they turned into the Texona after the war, but still very simple cameras that um if you're a fan of shooting square image and can't afford a 10x2 or a robot, those are still pretty affordable. And they're fairly basic cameras, so that if they are found in non-working condition, they I would assume they're they're not as bad to, to clean and get working again. No, this one this one was um it actually had a problem that the leaf shutter had gotten out of alignment. And one of the shutter blades was like jamming into the other one. So there was a there was a little gap. It wasn't closing properly. So I took it apart and I was able to actually bend the the leaf shutter so that it, it passed by the other one again and could actually close. But with this one at least, this is one of the the older taxonas. I think the 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 later ones they changed it. But on the bottom there's two little pins. And these little pins are where one of them will the, be the take-up spool and the other one is for your actual film canister and the um the older film canisters i think had like a cross pattern on the top and the newer ones just have a slit and that slit design will actually get out of sync with that little pin so if you're if you've got one of these and you're you get through like half a roll and it won't advance anymore put like some people put a little nut on there, I actually, I glue, you can't see it because it's black on black and the people listening can't hear it anyways, but I actually glued a little, little piece of uh, round wood on the bottom just to guide that uh, top of the film canister so it doesn't like get out of sync and start doing a washing machine around that little pin. 
Is, is that because the slit's a bit wider or and it sort of plays around in there? Yeah, the, there's actually enough space for the little pin to kind of slide back and forth in here. And from what I read uh, or what I saw somewhere, they, they used to actually have four little pins in here. And now there's just two. That is interesting. Yeah. Well, there were differences just in cassettes in general back then that compared to how they are made now. And I don't know if yours will do it, but I know on the 10X2s, if you load in uh, a, a traditional, like t current, you know, a Fuji or Kodak regular cassette, it doesn't quite sit all the way up exactly where it needs to be. And it's not, it's off by maybe a millimeter at most. But when you expose your images, you'll see that the exposed image is shifted off by just a tiny bit. And part of the one part of your image will hit the um, perforations. And then the other half, there's like too much of a gap. So I learned that that has to do with the thickness and the, the general shape of the cassette. So um, between, you got to remember, Kodak didn't standardize that this is called the Type 135 daylight loading cassette. This style of cassette did not get released until 1934. The Kodak Retina was the first camera designed specifically for this cassette. But Leica's and Sysicon Contacts is, uh, and a few other cameras still could shoot 35 millimeter film and they had their own reloadable cassettes. But if, if you go to uh, a Contax one or early thirties Leica and look at the cassettes that those would have come with, they aren't exactly the same. There's, there's minor variances between them all. The robots use their own cassettes. So even, you know, 35 film, the film, the physical film is the same, but how, it was stored and transported in the camera. There's those those minor differences, like you're explaining. You know, they had the the cross pattern and then went to a single line. That was just the natural evolution of 35 millimeter film. And when Kodak designed this, you know, Kodak gets a lot of shit for coming up with 620 and 828 and uh, the Instamatic 126 format for their cameras. But the daylight loading cassette that Kodak came up with was designed because they wanted it to work in both the, the Leicas and the Contaxes. So they had to sort of find the middle ground of maximum compatibility between as many different people's cameras as possible while still making their own. And clearly they succeeded as the longest lived 35 millimeter format ever made. They, they, they beat out Agfa's Carat system more than once. They you know re-released that as the rapid cassettes in the '60s and can't get those anymore. Have you have you ever seen? Uh, speaking of the reloadable cassettes, mm, you in Czech in Czechoslovakia back in the day you could buy reloads for 135 that would actually look like 135 spool of like 120 film that it was would be wrapped in paper. You would open the cassette, put the put the small spool with the film on in, pull, pull up the paper leader out, then close the cassette, and then pull the leader all the way, pull the paper all the way out until the 135 film will, would come out. And that that was how you loaded your cassettes. That you would basically just get the middle spool, put it in 135, pull out the paper, and you would reload like this. I still I, I, from some guy, he basically wanted to get all of his uh, film stuff away. I was interested only in the darkroom stuff. And he was like, okay, here it is, take it all. And I got through the boxes and there were still a few fil like film reloads like this. I, I never shot it. I never shoot expired film, but 
And I have a book from like early 40s from Czech Republic, like about shooting on film. And they quite mention this style of reloads of cassettes. And he says, yeah, just get like five cassettes that work and then just buy the reloads with the paper. I've never heard of that. Before. Now, what I what I thought you were going to say, and I grabbed one real quick, but it's not. And this, the Smina film would usually come in single reloads where you open the, so the box is, it looks like just ever so smaller than like a Kodak box would be. And when you open it up, there is paper wrapped film, but there's no cassette. It's just the film. So this is. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I meant. Yeah. And it yeah, is the and same. They, okay. Yeah, they, they made. Yeah, that's a little bit different. They made they made a variant that was like 120 film that it was wrapped in paper. Okay. Around the, and you put it in cassette, pull out the paper leader. Yeah, because this doesn't have a leader. So that's one little difference. But it seems like it's a very similar idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that was, I think it's just because everything was just so expensive back then to sell new rolls of film in a cassette would add to the cost. So they just, they you, you reuse as much as you could. All the Eastern European cassettes were reloadable. Okay. I, I, I still use the... I still have like a whole box of uh, East German Orvo cassettes and I still use them till this day. All the Eastern European film cassettes were reloadable. So you basically needed just a few cassettes and then you would just buy reload. Just got to make sure the felt, the, the light trap doesn't get too much dust or dirt or scratch the hell too many times. Yeah. But but if you ever, if for those of you who like to seek out old expired film, if you find some old Smina or, or the, the Czech film he's talking about, and you see these tiny boxes and you're like, oh, I want to try and shoot that. Be very careful. Don't start ripping open the paper because you're going to ruin the film. There's no cassette in there. But I, I tried. I, I had a couple of these. This um, photo 64. This one says it expired in 1962. Uh, I tried shooting it once and I got nothing. It was just it was too far gone. So I kept a, I kept a couple in the packaging with the film still in it because I think it's neat, but I'll never try to shoot this. Also, also this about cassettes. There is one story. I think all of you know that the Joseph Kudelka. I, I'm trying to pronounce it how, how English speaking people are pronouncing it, but probably the most famous Czech photographer. And when he was shooting the 1968 Soviet invasion of Prague, he didn't even had enough cassettes of the film. So basically, he would go into his dark room. Take, he had exacta at the time, opened the exacta, put like a bulk roll of film without a cassette into the camera in the darkness, put it in, close the camera, shoot all the exposures, and then again run to his dark room to reload the camera because he didn't have cassettes or he shot all the cassettes he had prepared. So he was running back and forth between his dark room, shooting the tanks in the street. Well, meanwhile, we're at it. We're talking about film. I found a nifty film stock that no one has or no one is shooting anymore uh, yesterday at a flea market, which is Kodak's infrared, ectochrome infrared film. And I know it's very rare to find, very hard to find, but I don't know if it's worth buying uh, using it or not. Has anyone had a chance to use it or ever use it? Well, Mike just happens to have a roll of it. <laughs> <It's> uh, right here. <laughs> I, I just sent it to him, so I knew he had it. Yeah. You know, it, it, prob it probably isn't worth shooting because that film needed to be stored correctly. Uh, it's so far out of date. It's expired in 2000, and it was in a flea market. It really needed to be. It really needed to be kept frozen. Well, and this one, this is a this is a 20 exposure cassette, so that's it's pre 1980. 
So this one's even older than the one you found. I'm going to try and shoot this. I'm just going to overexpose the shit out of it. You know, I'll maybe shoot it like um, maybe an ISO 8 or 10 or something like that and just see what I can get. The one thing I will say, though, is that the the, the infrared film usually had extremely high contrast when developed. I'm going to develop it in black and white. You know, I, I'm not going to even try this in E4 or E6 or whatever. So I'll try this in black and white and see if I can get anything out of it and see if it even closely resembles anything like red sensitive film that might you might get today. But yeah, it's funny. So there's still a lot that I'm still learning, but when you're shooting those infrared films, do you have to use the um, this almost black filters there to get the true infrared out of it? To, to get to use it as it was intended, yes. But I mean, you can still shoot it without that filter. You're just going to get a full spectrum image, essentially. It, it's like shooting a digital camera that's been modified for IR. They're really what a, people usually say it wrong. When you modify a digital camera to shoot IR, you're not removing the IR filter. You're removing the natural light filter, allowing all the wavelengths to come through and beyond the visible spectrum. And then you have to add the, those dark, nearly black filters, which only allow IR light to pass through it. So that part of the spectrum, although we can't see it with our eyes, the camera can. And so in the, the when you when you see a digital camera has been modified, the visible light filter has been removed. I did that to a little uh, Nikon point and shoot at one point and shot it black and white and had some really interesting results from it. There was there's a point about some of the later AF SLRs like this uh, Canon 500N. I'm not sure is that a Rebel G in the US? US I can't never quite remember the the numberings, but they have some form of infrared sensor for the film count system which means if you put ir film in it you'll end up fogging your film so it's just worth being aware about that it used an ir frame counter that was the uh, we called them i think it was one of the elon series but yeah it used a, a an infrared frame counter to uh for the film advance i think this is one down from the elan i think it's i'm sure it's one of the rebels but i think it's the g i could be wrong about that uh well it's a it's a sort of low mid your consumer model famously sold for uh, for women to use shades of nick and em there one of the at times we had robert shanebrook on he was talking about one of the many reasons they'll probably never make true ir film ever again is the way the manufacturing process works is they actually use ir to to count the i don't remember the exact wording he said but during the manufacturing that's how they count off how long of a piece to, to insert into a cassette so they no longer have the machines at at least at kodak which is what he was speaking about they physically couldn't make ir film if they wanted to because it would get ruined during the manufacturing process i, I somewhere i i cannot remember where i was trying to find it after several times i i saw some interesting photos someone was shooting ir ir black and white film in contacts g2 because supposedly contacts g2 it's out of focus should focus even in complete darkness and he was using true ir film black and white with ir filter and he was using infrared flash and he was shooting in the cinemas and he was like shooting people in the cinema watching the movie and basic with infrared flash, and it was like daylight, and yet no one would see him. It was quite interesting series of photos, but I cannot find it anymore. I saw it once somewhere on the blog, and I couldn't find it ever after. 
It was quite interesting. You can do that. If you want to do it digitally, the Sony FSC 828, there was a 707. They had three models. The 828 was the highest end one. And that camera is desirable because with a magnet, you can fo- it had a, f- uh, a filter that could be moved electronically. But by using a magnet, you could purposely turn it off and shoot IR uh, images outside without any modification of the camera. But even without the, mad- the magnet, that camera had a feature called night shot, which was taken from Sony's camcorders at the time. A lot of camcorders from the early aughts had a night vision mode. They implemented that exact feature on that camera. It's a digital camera. It's got an eight megapixel. It has a Zeiss lens. It's a very good zoom lens, F2, I believe. But it can do exactly what you just described. You could take it into a dark movie theater and the camera has an IR blaster on it. So you could point it at someone in complete darkness and you they would have no idea they're being blasted with IR light and then the infrared sensor will actually pick up the image and you can see them but basically how you describe it. it's it's monochrome where it you know comes out that green night vision look but it's essentially monochrome but you could do that without uh you know having to find the really really difficult to locate film federico you were talking about the film that you found did you was there anything else you'd said you had found no that uh two both versions both the ectochrome version and the black and white version both expired around 99 2000 so curious to try it out but with you know during the summer probably and you only have the one roll. yeah i only have the one roll unfortunately i found it in the flea market it was around 20 euros so if you see online they're around 150 people are selling it for wow shitload of money because it's so rare and Unless you want to do a clip test where you cut out a you know a, a small piece of the film and see if you can get anything out of it to maybe save you know ninety percent of the roll. If you if you're just gonna shoot it and see what happens, I would do a lot of bracketing. You know, uh, was it a thirty six exposure roll? Yeah, thirty six exposure. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I would I find out what the actual ISO of that film was supposed to be, and I would go. T- you know, it was plus zero, plus one, plus two stops over just shooting the same thing three times. You know, you'll get a third of the potential shots, but at least you should get something, I would think. And if it's from the from around 2000, it's I think you get something. I, I mean, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I will want to bet you'll get something out of it. I think at least the black and white one. I was going to say I was gifted some some Kodak uh, black and white HIE and uh, Konica. Uh, 750 IR, I think it's called, and the Konica came out that worked. Um, whereas the Kodak was absolutely blank. It it was it had an expiry date of about 94, so it's even older still. Uh, but the, the, there was n- there was no discernible images on the Kodak film, but the Konica was okay, and it was of a similar age, and I think it'd been stored similarly. But it was just that's just one film, so I guess just gonna try. Yeah, I think it all depends on how it was stored. Being at a flea market, it was probably stored some. It could have been stored in a car for 24 years. <laughs> you never know. But, you know, it's it's worth trying out, seeing. At least I tried it. So Yeah, that's the fun of the hobby. Have you heard about film called, our East German guest would know, the Orvokolor film. It was East German film. It The first iteration came about same time as Kodachrome, like late 30s, I would say. They would use it uh, in movie industry, yeah. And it used uh, like uh, 
the when you were processing it was a cold process like for e6 you would use like a i don't know 30 yeah, i am using celsius like much hotter bath and this was done in like room temperature basically bath temperature i guess and in czech republic you still can when I, when i am going to my lab you here and there still people come oh i have this old film after my gra- great father can you develop it and it's basically like with kodachrome no you cannot <laughs> although i i've heard rumors about people being able to develop it even saw some hazy pictures but nothing is confirmed i tried it once i was like okay let's let's do like a stand development in rodinal because that will develop anything in black and white and no there was just the faintest image but no so we're still talking about film i was gifted this um this role it's fuji chrome tungsten 64 and i was just kind of wondering what was like what was the planned market for that why would you have a 64 iso tungsten film i mean i would need quite a bit of light so i was just kind of wondering if anybody knows what what that was pr- produced for studios it was for studio use uh for studio use, any because hot lights were very, very good in studios. I mean, for small product, anything that you were shooting 35 millimeter for, but there was also, they were available in, in uh, 120. Kodak called it EPY, which was ASA 50. Uh, and then there was EPT, which was 160. But yeah, they were, uh, it's not uncommon at all. Yeah, in the US, it was, uh, it was used for, uh, well, it could be for slide duplication, uh, it could be for photographing art, you know, flat art, uh, making title slides, uh, anything where you were going to use a copy stand because the, your light source there would have been hot lights. And I guess the lower the lower ISO just gives you better quality and less less uh, color distortion or whatever. Right, less contrast, less contrast, greater color saturation, and and of course you're not you don't need to filter it because your lights are either thirty two or thirty four hundred Kelvin. So the 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 uh, it, it's set pretty much for just the film is going to match up with the lighting. Usually they were quartz lights, which were 3,400 Kelvin. And then uh, if you had tungsten bulbs, they would have been 3,200. But they're, they're close enough. You should give it a try. You should give it a try. I, I have, uh, I've been using a lot of Ektachrome 160T. I tried the 320T as well. And pretty much they expired at beginning of the 2000s. So... 2004, 2003, and they still look decent. They have a little bit, my, the film that arrived when I developed had like a magenta cast, but you can correct it uh, on Lightroom. So give it a try. They still work. If you shoot that film outdoors uh, under daylight, you're going to get a very blue image. The filter would be an 85A, which was a a dark amber uh, filter. Uh, There were 85A and 85B. One was to correct for 3200 one was for 34 but they're, they're interchangeable but you know as uh, as rodrigo said you you could probably correct it out but it will be quite blue uh, just like if you shot daylight film under tungsten it would be very orange or amber and is that the same filter you need for using the ec2n in 2n uh movie still tungsten yeah yeah it's the same same thing same thing yep it's a it's also a tungsten balanced film the the t what the T ones, obviously, not the D ones. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know the, the nomenclature on the, the current movie films. I, I know they've changed them, but on the old stuff, it would have been uh, uh, it would have been amber 
or dark blue filter. I was I was shooting some tungsten balance negative film in daylight, and it was very easy to correct in in, in post process, like really easy. Because of the rise of film, are you guys using a lot of more more cine movie uh, film or buying the classics? I'm still working through the classics because I'm working through my my, my fridge. But um, at some point, I'm going to have to make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the same happened to me. My girlfriend looked at my freezer and she's like, and you're hoarding all this film and you're still buying new film? <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically basically shooting zero color. I, I shoot because because I'm <laughs> I, I still do a lot of uh, documentary work. Well, that's basically what I do, like street photo here and there. But I mostly do like big long term documentary project. I shoot exclusively on film, and I go through like twenty hundred foot rolls of HP five a year and bunch of uh, Kodak Tri-X in 120, because in 120 I shoot Tri-X. And I basically shoot zero color, but I have a, like a brick of new Ektachrome in my freezer, because I was like excited, oh, new Ektachrome is coming, I will find out a project that I will shoot in color, and I never did. But we now have a lab in Prague that processes ECN ECN2 process, and I could get bulk Kodak Vision 3 for basically nothing. It's so cheap if you buy it, like, I don't know, 500 feet of it. So I'm thinking to give it a go, but with me and color, like to have 36 exposure of color, like I will maybe shoot some color in my 6x9 because that's only 8 shots, but 36 shots of color, I don't know, I wouldn't know what I would do with it, to be honest. Don't put it in a half frame. Yeah, I don't have, luckily, any half frame cameras. Yeah. That would literally kill me. <laughs> For the, the Vision 3, my favorite Vision 3 film is the 50D. I, I really, really like that that film. Um, I, I, I tend to prefer slightly warm pictures. A lot of times when I'm editing in Photoshop, I tend to add a little bit of a warming filter to even my digital images. And... I like the look of the Vision 350D when it develops naturally. It just tends to, you know, the daylight almost goes a little past what it, what's natural looking. And I, I do like the look of it. But it, that's one of the harder ones to find. You could find the, the 400T pretty easily. The 250 is pretty easy to find. But I, I don't see the 50D as often. There's a guy here in Europe, in Germany, and he sells all kinds of cinefilm uh, respooled and he's selling a lot of even like vision two vision one cinefilms as well as the Fuji Eterna and I had a chance to use Fuji Eterna 500D which was expired and he tests them all out and says like uh, tells you what ISO to use it to expose it and it's really really nice greens are fantastic on this there's an eBay seller on in the UK who sells that as well, tested and 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 match set for you. Oh, it's really it's really good. Even the, the name, if you guys want to know, it's like like thirty five mm dealer or something like that. And it's all from Germany, so and prices are really cheap. And this is like on eBay. All the exp- no, this is on his site. Uh, I gotta find it. I'll send it. I'll send the link. Yeah, send a link. We'll put it in the show notes. Is it C forty one process? Uh, ECN two. They're all ECN two. Yeah. Okay, so that's uh, forgive me for for not knowing exactly what that's that's the stuff with the rimjet backing. 
So basically, they're just taking off the Remjet backing. It's if you can get the backing off, you could process it your, yourself in C41. It's it's not not a, the Remjet is not such a big problem if you home process it like in a tank. But if you if you would bring it in the lab, it would clog the machine. Basically, I I remember when I bought my first Cinestill film. I bought it I don't know from from where, and I brought it to my lab. To, pro to be processed in C41 and they were like no no we are not putting it into the machine I said no it's C41 it's here written on the box no we are not putting it in the machine that's it uh, in the US there were a number of uh, companies Seattle Film Works and, and Dale Color Lab and places sold uh, that film and many lab owners the first thing they taught their employees was if you see these brands, we do not process because it uh, it will it will you'll wind up having to, sh to strip down the entire machine and clean all the gunk yeah. out of it. That was the Seattle Filmworks stuff, was that way, right? Yeah, Seattle Filmworks, right, fifty two forty seven. But you you guys, Mike, you don't you you process that with the and remove the rim jet. Yeah, I do. I'm I. And it's just basically baking soda and water, isn't it? Uh, that's one way to do it, and I found it gets 99.9% .9 of it, but I've been given a formula of that, that does an even better job than baking soda does. What I tend to do is because to be honest with you, you can develop it in the C41 with the Remjet still there. It's just going to start to flake off and pollute your chemicals. So if you end up going that route, you have to add the necessary step of either using some kind of squeegee some people hate squeegees, but what I do is I just gently rub the film between my thumb and forefinger as I'm taking it out of the tank to get any last bit of, of that crap off of it. And I, for whatever reason, it, that seems to work best for me. It, my, you know, my fingers, as long as you're clean, you're not going to scratch the film. But as long as you get it off, every subsequent roll you then do after that, you do that process because you could get the little bits of it stuck on future rolls. But it is better to remove it ahead of time. That's probably the better way. But lazy people like me, if you're going for the most lazy way possible to shoot Remjet film and you do it at home, you can do it in regular C41 process. Some people say that the colors will be slightly off because there is a difference in the actual chemical development of it. I've never found it to be that big of a deal. But you you gotta you gotta find whatever way works best for you to just remove it before you start scanning. Otherwise, it'll leave artifacts all over the film that you'll see when you scan. And I, I've known some people that after the process, uh, just run the uh, drip the the chemicals through a coffee filter, and the coffee filter will catch any of the remjet that's yeah flaked that. off in the solution. Just don't drink the coffee afterwards. <laughs> no, probably better not to. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that'll at least let you get it, get that stuff off so it doesn't stick on anything on your next roll. There is a formula that's published by Eastman for their actual rimjet remover, and it's sodium sulfite, borax, and lye. And you mix it up, and I made about a, a quart of it, and it's good for maybe 50 rolls of film. And it's a one-minute pre-soak, and then just a rinse with hot water, and it removes 100% of the rimjet. I mean, your, 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 your Patterson reels actually come out cleaner than when they went in probably because of the lie. If you're, if you're serious, like I bought, I bulk load right now, I've got 50 D and 250 D and 500 T uh, bulk loaded. And if you do enough of it, it's worth tracking down the Eastman formula uh, because it's like magic. Cause for years I would do it just like, like, like Mike did. 
this stuff. You put it in there, one minute soak, uh, maybe three changes of hot water. And you have, like when you go to wipe it at the end, your cloth is is white because there's there's just no rimjet left on the film by the time you, you've processed it. And it doesn't get into your chemicals, uh, preserves your chemicals. I'm on probably roll 20 of the last uh, batch of ECN2 chemical that I mixed up. And it's as clear as the day I started. So it's a pre-wash and, right. and the, all the rimjet will come off in the pre-wash. Absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 it's the one that's, it's the one that's published by Eastman for professional ECN2 processing. So when you hit the developer, there is no rimjet left on the film. So your chemistry is going to be clean. Correct. Cool. That's very cool. Speaking of chemicals, I, I found the book I was talking about. It says just black and white photography. It's it's fifth edition from 1956. First edition was in around 1942, I believe. And you have like, it wouldn't be seen, but like whole tables of photographic chemicals. And my favorite one is that the one that uses uranium. If you have like a weak negative and you want to print it, you are supposed to use solution of uranium on the paper to right. help you to print from the weak negative. Basically, like three quarters of the chemicals here would get you on like domestic terrorist list. <laughs> uh, and, but they are also, uh, because like in 50s, like ISO 100 was considered like very fast film. Yeah. And they are suggesting if you want to, double the effective ISO of your film, they suggest put your film on the spool, like in the darkness, put thin, la thin layer of mercury in your developing tank and put, put the film like on the spool in so it's just above the mercury, close it and leave it for 24 hours. So it will soak up the mercury fumes and then for 24 hours, the film will have double the speed. Oh my and God. <laughs> Recipes like this are in this book. That is First hilarious. Thing. And in a few years, you have half the speed. <laughs> so. yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> personally, half the speed. And cancer. Keep your Geiger counter running. Jeremy's showing a Geiger counter, it looks like. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's, 50, it's 50. It's like everything was cancer, basically, back, back then. Yeah, but but it, it's, a, it's a good book. Like, it has a lot of, like... Mathematical formulas, how the rangefinder works, like all the tables, how to calculate depth of field for any lands. Yeah, it's very, very technical, like very hard to read. So let me guess, the book, the paper is made out of asbestos and uh, the ink is arsenic, right? Is that? <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably, That's... yes. Well, yeah. you know, think about if you think about the earliest days of photography from George Eastman making the dry plates, pretty much if if it was the 19th century and you were into photography, you were also a pharmacist. You know, yeah. there is a reason why pharmacists were often the first photographers, because they are the only ones that had access to these crazy chemicals to make the early light sensitive, you know, materials and such like that. And that's, there is a strong link between pharmacy. Kanaka dates back to a pharmacy in Japan. And, and like I said, George Eastman did too. So you, some of that stuff was probably horrible for you, you know, and that's once again, Robert Shanebrook was on the show. And one of the many reasons you will never, ever see Kodachrome ever again is that some of the chemicals needed to develop that film were horrible, bad for you, bad for the environment. And it's a wonder 
uh, we made it to even 2010 still being able to get that stuff. Yeah. Also, film is not vegan because it's using gelatin. All of us are, are very bad for the earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I, I saw I saw some vegan film now also. But yeah, this this book has some hilarious recipes. In, in Czechoslovakia, like I'm 35, so I was born one year before the revolution, so I don't remember this time. But I hang out with old photographers and basically you couldn't buy chemistry like pre-made. I mean, you could, but it was kind of rare. So everyone was mixing their own developer. Everyone was mixing their own fixer. Yeah, they were, yeah, just... Also, when I when I go buy up a dark room, I get those huge boxes of old chemicals they were using to mix the fixer and stuff like this. Yeah. Kodak sold raw chemistry right up until about 2000. Uh, I mean, you could buy borax, you could buy codol, uh, you could buy uh, sodium thiosulfite, you could buy, you know, just about anything you wanted. And then there was another company in the U.S. called Photographer's Formulary that were out in Wyoming, or out in Montana. And uh, you could buy any raw chemistry from them as well. I think they might still be around. They, they're- uh, The name sounds familiar. Yeah, so. they're, they're involved with the wet plate and- uh, the collodion photographers you know that are yeah adam paul has has gotten a few of their things too yeah they've been around for a long time yeah there was a there was a book available in the u.s it was called the photo lab index which was similar to what uh Tadeus had you bought the book and then for ten dollars a year they would send you updates so as new films came out uh they would supply all the data uh for for the film and also how to process it in different developers. But the book was, it was a cool book. It was maybe, uh, I think, five or 600 pages uh, and uh, very complete. You mentioned arsenic right uh, a minute ago. Uh, I have a, uh, an interesting piece of photographic history here that involves arsenic. This is an arsenical book. You can see it has a uh, bright, vibrant green cover green. to it. Yeah, I see that. Uh, yeah, that's Paris green. That's, that's arsenic. So I'm going to wash my hands in a second. But the reason why I say this is a um, piece of photographic history is uh, you'll see that it has a beautiful golden signature of James Garfield in the front. This is actually his biography. And if you look inside the front cover, behind this piece of um, parchment paper is a beautiful, what's called a Woodbury type. And now uh, this is the first way that they were able to get real photographs in books, in print. And the way this works is it's not like a, um, a later halftone. And I have a halftone printing block here. It's not like a later halftone where it selectively accepts ink. What happens is the, the ink is very viscous and it sort of stamps onto the page in a relief. So the thicker, the denser parts of the image are actually a thicker uh, pigment. So if you run your finger over it, you can actually feel the you image. You feel it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And if you've ever seen a, a Woodbury type or get the chance, can't, almost I can't feel it. When you look at, yeah, <laughs> when, when you look at it in person, it's almost like it's a sculpture. But yeah, I'm going to go wash my hands now. That's neat. I've actually seen printing where it has a texture. So that, that's probably that same process you've described. That's neat. Also, if you do the carbon print, it's like three-dimensional. Yeah. And there is a guy, guy in Spain. who He is easily found on Instagram. I just cannot remember now. Yeah, it's called the wet, wet print. And he does even color carbon print. And if you look on it on site, as it has like, I don't know how many layers of the different colored inks, it's basically like three-dimensional image. It's amazing. Very cool. John Kelly, we haven't heard from you much. Anything new or interesting you've had? 
No, I'm one of those photographers who thinks, you know, a new camera will improve his skill. And I'm always looking for new old cameras. And I think my most recent challenge was my daughter got married in London in August. And, you know, we hired a photographer who was going to shoot digital, but I wanted to to bring a camera that was kind of small that would, you know, produce negatives that would last a lot longer than a uh, SD card or a digital file. And I've I, you know, I treated myself to a, a, a Konica Hexar that was really balky. There's a problem with them that it's like, we'll focus, but it doesn't really take a picture. And, and so I didn't bring that. I think you had talked about or written about the Konica Pearl. Uh, so I thought that would be a cool camera. I, I got one from Japan and the rangefinder, you know, it said perfect, excellent condition mint. And the range find I shot a roll and the range finder was off. So it was, uh, yeah, same with an XA that I, an Olympus XA I got from Japan. Same thing. The range finder was off. You've had, you've had some bad luck then lately. It sounds from Japan. I don't know what the, yeah, you know, what can be done about that. But I, I really don't, I mean, I was an English major, so my math is not great. And I don't like scale focus cameras because numbers frightened me. So I, I really wanted a rangefinder camera. But what I ended up bringing and, and, you know, has always produced really nice photos for me is, you know, a Minox, you know, a little uh, M uh, 35 ML. So, you know, I got over my fear of, of numbers. And it was great. Yeah, I was just gonna say that doesn't have a rangefinder either. No, but I was like, you know, none of these ones with a rangefinder were working that well. Uh, so I'll, I'll go with this and it has a very sharp lens, but I wondered, I do like, you know, little cameras like that. And I wondered, Mike, if you would ever, uh, this didn't work when I got it, the Agfa compact. Oh yeah. The, the sensor, is that the sensor? Well, it's no, it's, it's, it's not a sensor. I, I've seen those. This is an Agfa compact. It's a 2.8, 39 millimeter lens Agfa Solinar. And it has a little, it loads sort of automatically. This little thing comes down and it, it advances automatically and it rewinds automatically, but only if it works. And this one doesn't work, sadly. Probably won't be made by Agfa, I suspect, because a lot of the later Agfas were made by... Chenon, other, usually. Chenon, well, the, some of them are made in Spain. There's a... Oh, okay. Uh, there's a... I, there's, there's certainly one with the, the orange button that was made by a Spanish company as well. Uh, by Certex, I think. Yeah, this one's made in Germany, and it and it would have had a uh, you know a flash attachment the way the Olympus uh, XA. Uh, yeah. Here's an Agfa Selectronic SLR, which is a Shinon. It's a CE4 rebadged. It's the, the big difference is just the body is all plastic. There's no leatherette, nothing on it. So it has kind of an interesting, interesting design to it, but otherwise it has the huge orange button that a lot of those had. Yeah, I do like that. You can't miss the it. The Optima wasn't too bad. The Optima, Agfa Optima sensor. I had one of those that was the Flash model recently, and it actually worked very well. I have an Optima Parat half-frame camera that's taken really nice pictures. By a fantastic. That's 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 the Chrome one, right? It's got yeah. the Chrome bot. Yeah. Yeah. They they are superb. I, I I love using mine because it's it's interesting. It's actually got a um a light meter, but it doesn't need a battery. But it's actually got a light meter inside, um, so you can actually uh, use it and see if you're sort of hitting the right exposure. It, it is uh yeah quite quite a brilliant little camera. 
and the lens is just top notch. It, it really is. I thought there was no way the light meter could still work in it, but it did. It was. It does, yeah. It was. It was fine. Yeah, I'm very fond of this thing. If you want to shoot that camera, the Optima Parrot, uh, but for whatever reason you're struggling to find one that's affordable or with a working meter, there was this, a lower end version of that just simply called the Parrot One, P-A-R-A-T One. It does not have the attractive chrome body or silver body. It's just black, but and it doesn't have a meter, but it allows full manual control. So you get the the, the same half frame, same exact body ergonomics are the same same lens or at least i think it's the same lens but um i i have one and i shot it and i i I, to me it was as good as any olympus pen but it's nice because there's no meter no electronics nothing and you could still control aperture and shutter speeds manually i hate electronic cameras so much (laughs) i i even i even refuse to have like metered camera like the fm is like only exception the fm2 yeah i yeah, the FM2, yeah. And I have FM somewhere that I recently bought. But even when I was buying a new Leica, because for my 30th birthday, I decided to buy like a new Leica, I went for the MA, not the MP, because the inbuilt meter. And I especially hate the inbuilt meter in Leica, like those three diodes blinking into your eye in the viewfinder. <laughs> just, just no. I have... Uh, Second X308, that's it. Like, why would I want, like, some blinking lights in the viewfinder? Uh, Brian McDonald joined us. Welcome back, Brian. Hi, everybody. And uh, It's nice to be joining you at a reasonable hour for yeah. change. It's not the middle yeah. of the night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I've been loving all the episodes, especially the, the ones I haven't been making. Um, it's all been great. But uh, I think I'm at, at a major turning point in my collection collecting odyssey which i'm happy to reveal <laughs> i basically instead of having a new year's resolution i had a new year's re- revelation and that was to restrict my collecting to a, a piece of furniture and also yeah to cameras that i will use and that has resulted in the cabinet i have behind me um having several cameras kicked out uh to make room <laughs> so i have i have a cap of 20 cameras in a particular uh, item of furniture and that's my new collecting parameters if you want to get something new something else has to go right exactly and it's quite fun it's been it's been a a revelation in that i kind of treat it like a a squad for um say the world cup so if i already have a a striker i don't need another one until the until one striker is injured or gets or gets uh, i don't know that dies so um for example the point and shoot could be that could be the striker I already have a very f- well-functioning point-and-shoot, so I don't need another one. But I do need one with a zoom. What happens with a red card suspension? I don't know. I don't know. This, the, it, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so it was funny because as soon as I did the count, uh, I had 19 cameras. And immediately I was like, some of them don't deserve to be on the team. So they were gone. <laughs> so, so then I got it down to 14. So now there's like 14 cameras in the 20, 20 camera cabinet. And now I have certain spaces to fill on the team that fit certain categories and there can only be one for each of those. So um, I thought I'd have fun by letting you in. And Mike, you've already chosen two of the team. Oh, have I? Uh, two, two of your recommendations are on the team. So if anybody else has suggestions for um, who might replace these in the transfer window, um, this is it. So for the 120 folder, and I only want one, Mike recommended the Super Fujika 6. And for the 120 TLR, and I only want one, 
Mike recommended the Ishika D. And for the underwater camera, there was two contenders. One was the PowerShot, Canon PowerShot AS1. Yeah. And the other one was the Nikonis 5. For the compact zoom, I had a couple of recommendations in the Facebook group, but it's still wide open. I think the Olympus Mu Zoom is the one to beat. For the 35 millimeter rangefinder with interchangeable lens, buy yourself a Pentax Zoom, much better than the Olympus Muji's, and they don't have uh, they don't suffer from barrel leaks. So the Pentax SPO AF Zoom is a classic, beautiful looking, um, fairly early SPO model. Not the biggest zoom range you get, but much better value. The Muji's, in my opinion, are overrated for the cost. Okay. They're not bad cameras by any stretch of the imagination, but they are fiddly, fiddly to hold, and they are prone to getting light leaks in their barrel. Okay, so the Pentax range you're talking about are not not the IQ Zoom range, but the EPSIO. Well, the IQ Zoom is the same as the SPO. It just depends where in the world you're buying. Uh, there's a few exceptions, but broadly, um, I think it, Michael, correct me about this, but I think America is tends to be IQ zooms. SPO tends to be much of the rest of the world, although you do. I've got a few IQ zooms. Yeah, I do have um, a Pentax IQ Zoom nine two eight, and I hate it. So um, it, it was it, it was my most. There, there are good there are good ones and there are bad ones, I would say, but the uh, yeah, SPOEF yeah. Zoom, which is a relatively early, is a fantastic. In fairness to it, I, I think it's the, the diopter is broken. Uh, the, the thing broke off, so I can't change the diopter. That, that annoys me. But also the, the frame lines. It's like, yeah, like no matter what I try to do with the frame lines, I always seem to have cut off half the picture, and I absolutely hate that. So th that's what really annoys me. But that was my mum's camera, and that's why I still have it. And then, yeah, um, so it's kind of, it's, it's out of the cabinet, but it's still in the room. Let me go that way. So, so Brian, I've got some recommendations for you. Great. For, for the 120, um, I am just a, an awesome fan of the the, the Voigtlander Procaro 2. Mm. Uh, it's a 6x6, small. It has the one of the best film advance mechanisms because you always get 13 frames per roll. So you get like a free frame for every roll. It's like a free roll of film every 10 rolls that you shoot. It's just also the, the, the color scope are on it's really nice. Uh, it's probably my favorite formulation of the color scope R of any Voigtlander camera. And then beyond that, I'm a big fan of the Super Icontas, both the, the 6x6 and the 6x9. I know Theo had a good luck shooting his 6x9, had some spectacular results shooting around Sydney. Uh, so you can sometimes find those for dirt cheap. I actually found all five of my Super Icontas for under $150 a piece. Um and you can find one, and and they're those the cameras that were they they were a, a big investment at the time, so they tend to be well taken care of, uh, you know, so they actually are in better shape than than some of the others. Yeah, you know, is that the six four five over there, Federico? Yeah, that's a that's a cool one. Uh, yeah, six four five. It, it was my great grandfather's camera. Yeah, it's a it's a yeah no they're, they they are real precision instruments. Underwater cameras. I shoot a, a Nikonos five pretty much exclusively. But I also really enjoy shooting my Nikonos 3. Uh, it's a much simpler camera than the 5. You know, it's full manual. There's no uh, aperture priority assist like you get on the 5. Um, but you can also find them for dirt cheap. Uh, they're, they take the same exact lenses as the 5. So any lens for the 5 will work on the 3. They're quirky in that you have to take the lens off to load the film. Uh, the lens actually holds the camera body together. So you take the lens off and then you pop the top off and the camera pulls apart. Another another benefit you, you touched upon, Anthony, the Nikonos 1, 2, and 3 has a uh, like a guillotine shutter 
that I don't have any actual proof of this, but I've never seen one fail. It is an incredibly reliable, simple shutter. It's almost as simple as like a rotary shutter, except it just doesn't spin. It's like got a curtain that just drops down as opposed to the, the Nikonos 5, the 4 and 5, which I think just uses a modified SLR shutter. Right. And, and avoid the 4 at all costs. The 4 was kind of a mutt that was put out. Uh, it's the only one that doesn't use a true round O-ring. It has a custom molded O-ring and they all leak. I've got new old stock. I've got ones from camera dealers that have gone out of business. Uh, I cannot keep that camera dry in the water. Well, there's there's no modern equivalent. You'd have to yeah. you'd have to find someone to synthetically make a new one, and even then, it would be sketchy. Yeah. So so the, so because of the O ring issue, I'd avoid the four at all cost. But uh, like a three uh, for an affordable alternative to the five. I mean, the five's the gold standard, you know. And you can find them that work quite well because people, again, they were an investment. People took care of them, uh, unless you had people that were like, God, I, I had one five that came out of a scuba rental locker in the Cayman Islands and it was beat to hell and you could not keep that thing dry. But the, you know, I, I enjoy shooting my three as much as the five in all honesty. Yeah. Well, I have, I have a, I have a game plan anyway. That's just the important thing. I, I've got like a, a very specific list of things that are left to go in the cabinet and it's really refreshing. I can't tell you because I, I had like two years of just going down the rabbit hole and obsessing over all cameras and trying to find the ones I liked. And just to be at this point where I actually have a list and I'm going to Photographica in May as well in London. So like the co combination of having a shopping list and actually somewhere to go shopping has me quite excited. So I'm looking, I'm looking forward to, to going there, but if I don't get everything, I, I, like there's other things I'm looking for as well, like lenses and stuff like that. Yeah. If I don't find everything at Photographica, I can go online or whatever. But one thing I found about the the Fujika Super Six, Mike, is that like they don't show up in Europe at all. Like I I have I've not seen them on eBay in Europe. I haven't even heard of anybody having one and that I know. So it's um it seems like a really nice camera. Yeah, I just can't I, I haven't seen them anywhere in Europe. So and I owe you an apology. You had asked me a question on the group comparing the Fujika to the the Ansco Super Speed X. No, it was the Agfa uh, Isolette. Super Isolette. Yeah, yeah, it's. I think that's the same camera. It's. It's one of those things where I responded to you in my head, but then I re now realize I never actually sent it to you. That's okay because I actually deleted the question because um, I I knew I was coming on here and I was going to ask you also. Um, I have seen one in person for a, a minute, but I've never handled one or I've never actually shot one before too. So my answer would have been I don't have a recommendation other than. I do really like the Fujika, but it, I'll agree with Anthony as well. When it comes to six by six folders, no range finder. My top is also the Fotlander Perkyo 2 for the same reasons he mentioned. I just love how small they are. That's the one thing, the one knock I'd say about the Fujika is if you've ever held an Iskra, the KMZ Iskra, it's a big camera. It For a six by six folder, you're not going to stick it in a, a small pocket. It's a substantially large and heavy camera. Whereas like the Perkyo is significantly smaller. So the Perkyo is a the Perkyo is a, is a is a viewfinder camera. Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah, uh -huh. there's no rangefinder. Uh, my 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 friend also endlessly keeps bugging me about oh just get a get a Foytlander Perkyo just get it just get it for for years now. Well, and and I don't I'm not gonna say that it's this show or anything I've written, but I had recommended the Perkyo to a couple people. And I was actually surprised when they said they couldn't afford them. They're like, the prices on them were through the roof. 
And yeah. I was like, what are you talking about? That's like a hundred dollar camera. It, but the prices have gone up on them tremendously. So p- people really? are, are aware. Yeah. I've, I've seen, I, I don't think you can get them for like under two, two fifty us, which, you know, is still reasonable if you get one that works, but they used to be pretty dirt cheap and uh, clearly the, the words out, but in terms of, if you value simplicity, compactness, like you want to, it's, I mean, I have a picture on my site where I, I took the Perkyo two I put it side by side with a Fotlander Vito, which is their 35 millimeter. It's, it's, it's like the equivalent of a retina. And then I had an Ansco Speedex, another six by six camera. And the, the Perkyo was like, it was slightly larger than the Vito, but it was quite a bit smaller than the Ansco. So in the, in the size, it's the mama bear of six by six folders, much smaller than, than most other ones out there. When it comes to six by nine folders, I must say I prefer... Uh, Feuchtlander Bessa to to the Iconta because the Iconta is just like too many levers, buttons, everything. Uh, all, but the Feuchtlander Bessa, even the Bessa van from 1929, I believe, it's just so elegant, so simple. You have just like a binding knob, shutter, and that's it. It's like very sleek design, very good design. And the lenses on Feuchtlander Bessa, they are like excellent I, I i was avoiding six by nine for a long time because as i said i shoot documentary i shoot 35 i shoot fast and i was like oh what i will be doing with uh, six by nine because it's three by two frame i got bessa last year and wow i'm in love with it for shooting landscapes and stuff and i have the one with uh, color scopar lens which was one of the it's not so much sought after the one with Heliar is much sought after, but it's still such excellent camera, such simple, such easy to use. I, I agree. I agree. I, I, I've shot mine quite a bit and, and I, I love it too. I mean, I use the Super Encanto too. I, I like both of them, but they are very different to use. So I fully agree with that. I have five different, five or six different BESA iterations from a 1925 through the BESA 2. And my favorite is actually the 1939 Bessa rangefinder with the color scope R that has like a really wide baseline rangefinder on it uh, that is extremely accurate. And, you know, it shoots six by nine and it's just, I actually prefer it to the Bessa too. But yeah, I've got like a 19, maybe 31 Bessa. That's just like the base economy model with the scope R incredibly capable camera. And even the 1950 Bessa one, uh with the scope r i mean the vascar lens is the triplet it's not great but the 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 1951 bessa uh is a tank but it's it's an incredibly capable camera and they hold up really well i've yet to find one to ever have any sort of an issue with bellows or mechanical uh so i also agree that the the the, i mean good lord i've got a kind of bessa the 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 six by six version i've got uh, like I said, I've got six or seven different iterations of it, and there's not a there's not a dog amongst the whole group. You know, each one of them's got its you know, something good to say for it. The best of two did make it into the the short list. It made it into the the, the top five of the um the folders. They were awesome, but they, they also tend to be a bit pricier. Oh yeah, that's true. For those that are wondering, oh, for those that are wanting one of those uh Folklanders, but for a lesser price, they did come out with an older version. I have one here. It's called the Folklander Raw Film. This is before they came out with the later, uh, like the Bessas and such. It's literally just called the roll film because this was their first roll film folder. Uh, these can be found for like half the price as long as you're okay with, you know, manually pulling the lens out. Uh, and they even come with a cool little sports finder 
and they have the same lens as the later ones. Like this one has a Scopar on it and they have a waist level finder. But as long as you're fine with those concessions, you can get these for like a third to half the price of the more expensive versions. I would love to have the sports finder on my Bessa 2 because the, the viewfinder on, on it, it's just like looking through the straw and composing anything. It, it's painful. So this being the European episode, I mean, obviously SciSicon and Fotlander made some good folders. So if we're talking six by nine folders, for those of you guys in Europe, these cameras might be a little easier than they are to find in the US, but I'll make a recommendation for, for the British six by nine, the Ensign Auto Range 820. This is a, a very nice, well-built German-esque quality camera. The bellows on mine are still in great shape. It has a, a Ross London 3.8 105 millimeter lens. It is a range finder, although it is uncoupled, which means you have to make your measurement using a dial for the range finder. And then when it lines up, you then transfer the reading to the lens. So it's a little bit slower, but this is a really nice camera. I've had good luck with the, with the auto range, the Ensign cameras, but then I don't have the other one I don't have in front of me, but I also really like the French, the Royer Teleroy which is another really cool folding camera that I've gotten really nice results from. And the Telleroy also has a rangefinder. But one thing that's very cool about it is the rangefinder itself is entirely contained on the shutter. So you, if you picture a six by nine folder, you're looking through the viewfinder on the body. And as you peer through the window, you can see the rangefinder actually on the shutter and it has a, a vertical split image. And, and it, it sounds difficult, but it actually works really well. You can see the range finder and you can compose your image without having to move your eye. But because there's no beam splitter, like you would normally have on a combined image range finder, which divides half the light for the range finder and half for your viewfinder, uh, the, the, on the Telleroy, it's very, very bright and, and quite easy to use. So uh, I don't know how easy or difficult either of those are for, for non us or north american people those are two really nice quality options if you're let's say you're into six by nine shooting and want a good camera but you just want to be different and don't want to have what everybody else does well, well mike if you're going to do that i'm going to make a case for my other my other deep european model which you never ever ever will find in the u.s but you can find in europe and that is another french folder from the 1950s the uh, de maria elite lapierre de, de maria uh, tilka three yeah uh it is one of the most beautiful six by nines it has a uh like a chrome nickel top plate it's got an integrated uh range finder it's got an actually a more stable uh bed on it than either the uh the zeiss or the voigtlander things a tank beautifully constructed camera probably the only french camera you ever need to own is a telka three and uh it's worth just like doing a standing search for them because uh, if they do come up, they're going to be in France or going to be, you know, somewhere in, in, in central Europe. And if you can find one because they're, they're under the radar. I mean, very few people have heard of them or seen them. And uh, I, I tell you that is probably the highest quality six by nine camera that I own. I've got something different here. Have, has anybody got any cameras made in Greece since we've got the European episode today? Is that the Sabina 127? I do have the Sabina 127 right here. So that's that nice, very simple, as simple as it can get and as small as you can get too. I mean, this is, but did you know there was a second Greek camera, which I don't have because only 400 were ever made. It's a, uh, a pickup from a, the camera service Picopolis. So uh, very rare. 
400 were made. And apparently the way the story goes was Mr. Picopoulos went to Munich, bought lenses, came back, made the cameras, started selling them for uh, a reasonable price. And then Kodak decided to try and match the equivalent top of camera on their price. And after 400 cameras, he he, he just gave up and said, no, nah, can't, can't buy Kodak. So we've got Kodak to actually blame for killing off the Greek camera manufacturing industry. So, but if anyone ever comes across a picker, please let me know because, like the Schneider, I've got a Greek back. I've got a Greek background, so I'd like a Schneider because it's an Australian Leica. I'd love to have a picker because it's a Greek reasonable camera, other than the Sabina, which is a piece of plastic junk, really. But it's it's fun. <laughs> I was I thought you were going to say it's a Panagopaflex. maybe i should start an industry up i know my my uh grandfather when he lived in greece in the 50s and 60s he used uh, a japanese camera there which was actually at the time that was kind of an oddity because most of the people that were taking photos at that time were using european cameras but he had a what is it a taron 35 mx or 35 something like that i still have it but man, if you ever come across one of those older Taron rangefinders, they're kind of dubious because the whole rangefinder mechanism is run by a couple of strings under the, the top plate, and those strings invariably snap. But yeah, there's plenty of uh, old Kodachrome slides from that era. So I mean, the lens on it's pretty fine. So so here's three more European cameras from non-traditional countries that I think are neat. Uh, one that I'm working on a review for right now is a Hungarian camera called the Mometa 3. Uh, Hungary had, I never knew this until recently, a, a very robust f- photography industry. In fact, the guy who designed the Petzval lens was originally from Hungary. And uh, Joseph Mihaly, who created the Kodak Super 620, he created the Kodak Ektra and the Metalist. He was also a Hungarian uh, immigrant who moved to the United States and worked. But the Mometa is a Hungarian. This is the three. There was a one, two, and a three. The three has an interchangeable lens. It has a rangefinder. But one thing that's very neat about it that is unique is this is a rangefinder, but it uses the M42 lens mount. And I'm not, you know, there have been other rangefinders that use screw mounts that are different from like a thread mount. But on this camera right now, I have a Zeiss Tessar 40 millimeter f4.5 off of a contacts and it works fine obviously you you need to use an auxiliary viewfinder to compose correctly but it has the correct flange focal distance of an slr but it's a rangefinder camera so the thought was i believe when this camera was being made to try and encourage more people to buy a hungarian rangefinder and it has a focal plane shutter it's it's a pretty decently built camera but if you had any east german practicas any kind of m42 screw mount lenses they would work fine on it so i i believe this to be the only rangefinder camera that can accept slr lenses the rangefinder is not coupled to the slr lenses of course but it does work fine you'll get properly focused images you could change your focal length on it another one is this is kind of a neat looking one. This is called the Gallus Derby Lux. This is an all metal camera that was sold in France, but it's literally the Foth Derby just redesigned with an all metal body. So if you can picture what the Foth Derby, which is a 127 camera, it's a it's a the bellows extends. It basically all the controls are in the exact same spot as the Foth Derby does too, but it's just this. It looks like someone peeled the body covering off of it, but that's just how they were. They were just all metal. 
And then the third one. Uh, another French camera. This is called the Rex Reflex. This is a uh, 6x6 TLR. It uses lenses that are um, externally geared, similar to like the Kodak Reflex 2, the Argus TLRs. Fairly standard looking TLR. But one unique feature that this one has is, I'm not going to do it because it takes a long time, but around both the taking and viewing lens, there's four screws, one in each corner. And when you remove all four screws, the entire front of the camera comes off. And they sold accessory fronts to this camera with different focal lengths. So this is, in effect, an interchangeable lens French TLR. And I believe they made three different focal lengths for it. So you could swap the entire front of the camera, you know, not entirely unlike the Mamiya C series where you're swapping the entire front too. just the Mamiya's is a bit more elegant and easier to do than having to remove four screws, not lose them, put the new lens back on and then put the screws back in. But French TLR interchangeable lenses. All right, I lied. I got one more. This is a night Italian. This is called a Gamma. This looks like a Leica-esque sort of type camera. But one thing that's neat about these is it has these two like lumps, like humps on the front of it. And what that is, is although they, they, they effectively work like a, a finger grip, giving you better control over holding the camera. But what's unique about this one is the shutter is actually a curved piece of metal. It has a curved arc, I guess, to it. And, and that's those where those two humps are on the front of the camera is where the spool is that it sort of winds around. So I don't necessarily understand why this company decided to make a shutter that's focal plane, but curved instead of straight, like on pretty much every other camera. But this is made by, I'm not even going to attempt to butcher the name of the company, but it's the same company I think that made the Condor. So these are pretty, pretty neat too. Not, not common. So don't, don't Google it. To be fair, we Italians are always complicated and uh, always do complicated stuff. So, <laughs> like the Recta, the Rectaflex, which is a beautiful yeah. camera the, with the with the funnest name. The Ducatis, Ducatis, and Bensinis. I have a I have a Comet Three, which looks like a little. It looks like a motion picture camera, but it's actually just a vertically traveling one twenty seven camera. weren't for Ferrania, weren't they making cameras as well? Ferrania, were, they were. weren't they also Dujures? I mean, they were. I've got a bunch of Ferranias uh, around. They're cool. Bellini. Uh... Ilford made cameras too. They had the Witness. This is called the Advocate. Comes in this white enamel body. It's actually more like a like an almond color. It's not quite white. This is what an actually historically, I guess, significant feature of the Advocate is it has a 35 millimeter lens, and I believe it was the first 35 millimeter camera to have a 35 millimeter lens. By the mid 50s, the wide, you know, they called them like the wide angle cameras um, started to become more common. But the, the Advocate was released in 49. So fixed lens, 35 millimeter. It has a 35 millimeter Dahlmeyer lens on it. So another camera that benefits from having a, a wide depth of field. The, the best advice I would give to someone who's nervous about shooting a camera without any kind of focus aid is use depth of field to your benefit right? Like ch change the approach of how you shoot and use the camera to its strength. So if you know you have a wide angle camera, you know that in good lighting with the correct film, if you're setting the lens to F8, F11, your depth of field is going to be anywhere from about six feet to like almost infinity. 
So if you're going to walk around and shoot pictures of people, just try to not shoot things super close or super far away. Like find things that are within that range, properly stop down and they're going to be in focus. And the advantage is, in my opinion, at least, is that when I see a range finder, when I look through a viewfinder and I see that double image, my brain requires me to line it up. Like I, I have to do it. But if you look through the viewfinder and all you see is just the image, you're, it's faster. I feel like I can shoot a scale focus image much more spont spontaneously than I could even a, an autofocus point and shoot. Because even with an autofocus, sometimes you have to wait for the autofocus system to get it right. Whereas when you have a camera like this or a Retina 1 or any number of, of good cameras that have non-range finder, non-SLR designs, you can shoot within that depth of field very quickly. And I think that once you get used to doing it that way, it, it sort of changes your approach and you end up getting images that you may not have otherwise been able to get. So use the camera to its strengths, use depth of field to your advantage. And I find scale focus cameras to be very fun to, to shoot. Yeah, my, my suggestion is if you're going to try scale focus and you're not sure about it, maybe start with a Minox rather than an Advocate considering the price. That's advocate. true. Yes, right. I've got a solution for a friend, another French-made camera that you don't have to worry about focus so much. The LaRouge 66 pinhole. Yeah, got a little bubble on the back and a little viewfinder for you to, it shoots 120 film. So you got your little viewer so you can see the paper backing. Shot it a couple of times. It's a great little camera. If you have infant children and a dog that runs around the yard, though, maybe that's not the best camera for them. True, true. <laughs> <laughs> Paul or Mike, I'm curious, in the in the uh, depths of the Kurt collection, were there any Ducatis? No, I didn't get one. Yeah, I have one. I have I have one. Uh, I can't shoot it because it's missing the spools. So I've been I've been trying to find the spools because the Ducati, it does use regular film, but it, they're very, very tiny spools. And the one that I had was missing both of them. So I haven't been able to do anything with it until I get the spool. Just run it through the laundry really hot. Maybe it'll shrink. It'll, well, but I don't even like there's nothing to even attach it to. Like I don't have I, like I literally have to put the film in the camera with no way of advancing or rewinding it because the spools are just missing. But yeah, the, the Ducati, I'll tell you, is. You can look at pictures of them online and okay, they're pretty, they're Italian, but it's not until you see one in person that you're like, this thing is tiny. They are shockingly small. Here's a Minolta 16. There's the Ducati sitting on top of it. Wow. So it's, it's not even as, it's about a millimeter narrower than the, the Minolta from front to back. It's, I mean, it's, it, this picture of Leica just shrunk down. I mean, it's got about the same basic dimensions of like a Leica two or three, just smaller in every way. But yeah, I mean, they are, you don't realize how tiny these things are until you actually see one in person. And does that, does that shoot a full 35 millimeter frame? No half frame, but it's, but it's regular 35 millimeter film. Half frame. Okay. So when you open up the back, there's the film gate. So it, the shutter works on this one. I just, I mean, as you can see, there's, there's just no spool. It's just missing. Just put a piece of wood in there. Or something, tape film to it. I could probably get one. Yeah, I could probably fabricate. Well, but it, it's even narrower diameter. So even if I were to like open up an empty 35 millimeter cassette and try and extract the inner core out of it, I'd probably have to trim down the flanges just to get it to fit in the body. Would one of the um, inserts you get for some of the uh, Soviet cameras work for that, Mike? The Narcissus? I could try. I do have a, I have a Narcissus, yeah. 
That let's see. Let's find out. But the Narcissus is sixteen millimeter though, so no, uh. there's no way. Yeah, this is these use sixteen millimeter film. So again, Narcissus. That looks bigger than the Ducati. The, the Ducati is slightly shorter. They're almost exactly the same width. Yeah, they are exactly the same width. The Ducati is narrower front to back and slightly shorter. Anybody? Does anybody else have any last minute things for? Speaking of the speaking of the scale focusing, I cannot even remember when I used rangefinder on my Leica because I everything I shoot uh, basically using. Either I shoot like hyperfocal or zone focused, and I just use my Leica as a point and shoot. I really like maybe when I'm shooting portrait with a 50 millimeter, I use rangefinder. Otherwise, working on documentary or anything, never. One one thing I love if you've ever shot a Canon rangefinder, one of the later ones that has the rotating prism, one of the settings you can set it to is RF, where it's it's kind of like the focal length for 135 but it's not labeled as such. And what it does is it magnifies the rangefinder patch to where it's almost the exact, it almost fills the entire viewfinder window. So you're, you're basically magnifying the rangefinder patch. So it's much larger and then attaching an auxiliary viewfinder to it. So I'll shoot like a Canon uh, P or a Canon VT deluxe, and I'll leave the 50 millimeter lens on it. I have a lights like a 50 millimeter auxiliary viewfinder that I put on the shoe and I set the range finder to the magnified size. So I'll, I'll do mostly like how you describe where I shoot at scale focus. But when I do want the assistance of the range finder by leaving it in that RF position, the viewfinder essentially becomes the range finder. And it's much larger for, for people like me that wear prescription glasses. Uh, I often struggle to see the edges of the frame anyway. So when you're using the rangefinder and it's magnified, basically all I see is the rangefinder, and I find that to be very easy to use. I was just going to mention this, which brings in a whole set of interesting dimensions. On one level, it is a cheap and rubbish disposable camera. Um, it would give today's a nightmare because it's half frame. It's one of the rarities. Yeah, uh, and in color. And color as well. Uh, but I guess the name's quite important because it's an Ilford camera, though it's not Ilford as you might think. It's the Swiss Ilford remnant of when the company went bankrupt. So these are by the Swiss guys. They're called Ilford Imaging, who weirdly own the copyright to the Ilford name, which is why the new, what we would call Ilford color film, uh, the Harmon Phoenix has to be called Harmon Phoenix. Um so, I mean, this is the same camera body. You'll find a bunch of European uh, manufacturers using it. Pratika, I think this week, launched a full-frame disposable using exactly the same one. Here's a Agfa Photo LaBox, pretty much the same camera. This is just probably the worst end of the half-frame craze we have at the moment because, I mean, I think the image quality from this is not going to be great. Having used the Agfa Photo, it's not the best disposable I've used. But the film in it's quite interesting as well. So it's Ilford Ilfocolor 400, which I think is made by Filmatech, um, as in Oro. Um, so I think it's a Wolfson NC500, but I don't know if anyone's got any thoughts about that. Really, it's quite interesting as... For rubbish cameras just to chuck in because it brings a lot of european camera malarkey together if you're new to camera collecting it's easy to assume germany and japan was was it right you know maybe the soviet union but i find that the industry is so many of these other countries 
Czech, the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, Italy, France, England, uh, Hungary, Austria. You know, I have the, yeah. the Wiener. Yeah, there's so many other countries that have pretty good histories too. It's just they they a lot of them just ended camera production once things became easier to get from Western countries. But I, I love this hobby so much because you just get to learn all these cool stories. And I'm I'm grateful to hear you guys telling some of your interesting stories of things that you guys get to see uh, that we don't hear in the U.S. see quite as often. John Michael. Uh, well, I was I was just wondering if there's about thoughts on servicing cameras. I, I recently got a Leica and I have no clue what the, what the service history of editors and it works fine, but it's kind of this paranoid thing. You know, you invest a bunch of money in a Leica and you're like, well, should I get it serviced or not? And if so, where? And I'm just curious what the, what the thoughts are on that. Like if it ain't broke, don't fix it or. This, that's a pet peeve of mine. So I, I have lots of pets and that's one of them. I don't repair anything till it breaks because you uh, let me back up on that. If I were going to go shoot, if I'm going to do a round the world trip, I'd want to make sure the camera was going to be working. But generally speaking, CLAs are a recent thing. I mean, 10 years ago, even people didn't CLA their cameras. They waited until they, there was a problem and they had them repaired. Uh, now it seems like everybody wants to have their camera CLA'd every year. And it's just not necessary. You know, if it, if it has a problem, that's fine. Lenses are the same way. Until a lens gets haze in it or or something nasty happens, uh, I think you just use it. And I'll add one last thing to that, too, is that the term CLA has been abused by people who actually aren't qualified to do a CLA. So here in the United States, if I had a Leica that I just wanted to make sure I, it was going to work for as long as possible, I'm going to use someone like Yu Shen Yi, somebody who is reputable who knows what they're doing, has many, many years of experience, but the local camera shop or hobbyist working out of his house, they're going to use the term CLA, but all CLAs are not equal. So um, I agree with Paul, don't fix it unless you have a reason to, unless it's like you're using that example of you want to make sure it's working or outside of the Leica world, because there's still enough people who can fix Leicas. If you have a camera like a robot or an Alpa, or, or, or some obscure camera, and there's only like one person left in the world that can do it, while they're still alive and accepting work, I would get it done. Because that the day will come that many of the cameras that we have, you won't be able to get fixed. So if it's something rare and obscure, and you have the opportunity and someone who, who can do it, then yes, I would do it. I, I truly believe we're going to still have people fixing Leicas for quite some time. There's just enough demand that, you know, you're going to still be able to find people, but don't assume that just because somebody says they can see LA a camera that they actually are, are going to do as good of a job as a pro would. Well, Leica, Leica M's are actually one of the simplest cameras in the world to repair. The only thing you have to have is the right tools. And most mom and most independent repair men don't have those tools. There are, there are certain wrenches and, and clamps and things that you need to be able to get into them. That's why there in the U.S. there really are about five different, really well-known uh, camera repairmen who specialize in Leicas, and and they're all busy because they they do get the bulk of that work. Well, I was I was at Leica uh, at the actual factory uh, last weekend, and they they have a ten to twelve month turnaround for a service. Yuxin in the U.S. is right now eight to twelve weeks. Uh, unless you want to pay a 30% surcharge in which you'll turn it around in a week. Don Goldberg, DAG, is uh, 
he's about the same. But you know, to to CLA a Leica M camera, Don charges five hundred dollars. That's hard to justify unless a camera really needs to have the work done. Uh, on thread mount cameras, it's silly. I mean, it's uh, I don't see any point in having a, a thread mount camera repaired unless it's something you really want to keep and use. It, it just isn't worth it. I just had a phone call with my uh, camera technician on Friday because he's servicing my Bessa 6x9. It's a it's an old guy. He he worked in a, basically everything was owned by a state in before 1989. And he worked in like a big state-owned company that serviced all the cameras that were available in Czechoslovakia, though he specialized on uh, Minolta, I believe. And I just had a long chat with him on Friday. What are his thoughts on servicing a cameras? And he said like, every five years, you should check the shutter, the shutter times. And every seven years, you should CLA the camera, like clean the old lubrication and put new lubrication on. So he said five years to get it checked, seven years to get it uh, like disassembled, degreased, relubricated, adjusted. And he is the one who has all the tools because in uh, 1989, when the revolution came, he either, let's say, liberated all the tools and spare parts he could or bought them i don't know but he still has like circuit boards for electronic practicas like practica bc1 i had it and i had uh, the main circuit boot board was fried and he said yeah i have still have it like a new part i will change it for you practica mtl5 shutters he has it yeah but he said five years to get it checked every seven years get it serviced that's his advice well I got to call this one here. I I apologize to all of you guys that it's taken us this long to do a, a, a time zone more friendly to you. Clearly, we have some very enthusiastic people. Teddy is great to meet you. Your stories are fantastic. I love hearing John Michael. You've been on the show a couple of times. Great feedback. Federico, Wayne, really awesome to talk to you guys. Alan, I speak to not verbally, but we chat often. Uh, Tim, I hope you get the arsenic off your fingers uh, adequately. We did lose a few, we did lose a few people. Jeremy, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you. Your, your, your display is very impressive, uh, but we're going to end this one here and we'll try to get another um, European time zone episode at some point. Hopefully it won't take as long as it took us to get to this one. If you guys can join us on any normal recording, you don't have to wait. Brian McDonald's been on a couple in the middle of the night graveyard shift. Uh, but we always welcome as many people as possible to come talk to us, ask us some questions, join us on the discord server, join us on Instagram, on the Facebook page. We try to, to engage as much as possible. Uh, I love hearing your guys' stories, your gas pickups. I love influencing people. Uh, Brian's soccer team analogy is, is pretty neat too. As always, the topics and discussions on the Camerosity podcast are influenced by you guys. So until next time, you guys all have a good rest of your day. Good night. Bye, everybody. See you, Mike. Good night. Good night. Good night. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. I've got a box coming back to you, Paul. Uh, there's no hurry. I my UPS driver got here while uh, while we were recording with a light lens lab, 50 millimeter f2 speed pancro lens. Do you want some coffee? Coffee? <laughs> yeah. Did somebody coffee? say coffee? He wants to trade.
<laughs> um, I like coffee. I'll send you some coffee. 